VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello everyone and welcome back to The Ruck from The Times and The Sunday Times. Will Kelleher here, back. Welcome back to Will Kelleher. Yeah. <laughs> Not much has happened since you've been gone. Well, when I last was on The Ruck, there were 13 teams in the Premiership. Um, it was not quite as wet and cold as it is now. We're very much in the autumn, aren't we now? And lots of chaos. And you've been holding the shit manfully since yeah, I've been I on really holiday. Yeah, I really appreciated that, Will. Watching your Instagram from <laughs> Budapest... Bucharest, where else are you? Not Bucharest, actually. Krakow, Vienna, Bratislava, um, Prague. Well, since you've been gone on your holiday, the world has burned. (laughs) It really has, yeah. Um, There are now 11 teams in the Premiership, or just about. Um, Anyway, I really appreciated all your help on the pod and in the paper while you were... Yeah, no, it was very fun. So I, thank you. I was owed for the listeners. It's just oh, boring, no, but yeah, no, I was owed no, I'm not having it. I'm not having it. <laughs> well, crisis. I'm just, it's crisis. Will I'm just glad to be sitting next to you, and you look much more comfortable than you did on my phone <laughs> yesterday. I was standing in the queue, your phone. At, um, Budapest Airport, going through passport control. Thanks Brexit. On your holiday. On my holiday, and popped up um, BT Sports. Sorry, Time Sports. Alex Lowe. Sitting on a tackle shield, tackle which is, shield. Yeah. for anyone who's had to do that, for I don't know why many would have done, that's a precarious position to be in. Yeah. Especially live on tele. Was it live or was it as live? I no, it was live. Right. It's good for your posture. Is it? Yeah. yeah okay. Because you don't want to roll backwards and end up <laughs> turtled with your feet in the air yeah. live on television. We um, slowly sort of sliding and going, so oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, I was asked to, to just give some uh, perspective on what's been going on in. In, in and around the Premiership from a, a media journalist point of view. And uh, had a, yeah, chat to Nick Mullins on the side of the pitch after the Harlequins game, which was, yeah. which I, re- I really enjoyed for, like, for totally different reasons to why some of the other games have been brilliant um, since you've been away. Will has some brilliant rugby. But um, yeah, it was thunderous and, and, a, and a great occasion. Not great for Harlequins, but a great occasion. And then, yeah, I was asked to go and join. Um, Nick Mullin, so it's now Alex Lowe, newspaper writer, podcaster, and TV star. Yeah, no, star? I think that's a bit much. <laughs> I was I was introed as one of the great rugby writers. Really, really, yeah. all right. I was like Craig, come on, man, like, <laughs> stop it. <laughs> I don't giving him twenty though, quid in his back <laughs> pocket. Thanks, mate. <laughs> like smiling sheepishly down, <laughs> down the camera, grinning. Well. We shouldn't laugh too much about the situation in golfing English rugby because it is pretty serious for lots of people in their jobs. But we will tackle a bit more about Wasps and the ongoing situation with them. 
But first, we're actually sitting in the seats where Eddie Jones has just talked to the media, having announced his England squad for the Autumn Nations series coming up in November. So we'll have a discussion about who's in and who's out there. We'll also tackle a bit more about the on-field Premiership stuff and the Women's World Cup, where we're joined by ITV's commentator, Nick Heath, who's going to run us through what happened in New Zealand. But first up, as trailed, England have picked their squad for the Autumn Nations series, and within it is the flanker Jack Willis, despite the fact that he doesn't quite know when his next game for Wasps is going to be due to their situation. And here's Eddie Jones talking about his particular selection. Well, it won't impact us, mate. You know, we can only control what we can control, and Jack can control what he can control. So the big thing for him is that he prepares like an international player. He's got a great opportunity to come into camp in the best physical condition he's ever been in. And the great thing when we saw him at the last camp was was that he's made significant improvement in that area and he's got another opportunity to do that again. You know, and we're working with the some of our staff are working with him to to get him in the right position. So Alex, we're here on location, another pod on location. We're at Twickenham at the start of the season. We're back at Twickenham again. While I was away, you went to the pub. Went to Turk's Head. Turk's yeah. Head and St Margaret. So it's, yeah. we've been more on the road than in the studio this no, season. It's nice, actually. I think so I it might it. sound a bit different. That's all we're trying to tell you. We're in the listeners. bowels of Twickenham. Yes, we are. The disgusting. media briefing room, which I don't think fans ever see, do they? But it's not the most interesting room in the world, to be honest. No, it's just off the tunnel. Yeah. The changing rooms are just, I guess, through that through those doors and to the left as the England changing room. And we just listen to Eddie Jones which if you listen to this on Monday afternoon there'll be quotes from him coming out in the paper um, later today and over tonight yeah so we just he heard a good him, mood wasn't he yeah he was we turned him on Jack Willis there when we spoke to him um, after that uh, sort of top table press conference we were asking about about Jack in particular and his his theme for Jack was and actually all those who were affected by the, the current situation but really it's at the moment it focuses in on on Jack who's playing brilliantly and one of the kind of crying one of the crying shames of this whole situation and there are plenty of other more serious ones is that he can't play and he's his his rugby has been outstanding I saw him live in Coventry last weekend um and and he was just the heartbeat of everything that they were doing and and he was magnificent and he won't get to play now Eddie Eddie probably won't worry about that too much and his big theme with Jack was of resilience was was referring to the injury he had out here at Twickenham last year and actually the way that he has come through 12 months out and come back, back end of last season, through the tour and into this season to be back at his best. Um, and he really endorsed Willis's kind of mindset, I guess, and, and drive to be as good as he can be. So um, that was that was his sort of, his view on, on Jack and the, I guess the road that he's now got over the next few weeks w- without a game, um, he's not the only one. Leicester aren't, haven't got any games now because they were due to play Worcester and Wasps and have a bye week. <laughs> so there's a lot of Premiership and England players who who are going to be very well rested when they get into England camp, which is probably all right for them now, but not when they arrive in Jersey because Eddie will have some special plans for them. Yeah, right absolutely. It, it is interesting, isn't it? Because no one wants this situation to have happened for Wasps and Worcester and all the people involved in those clubs. But if you're purely looking at it from an England rugby perspective, it actually has happened at quite a beneficial time, maybe. Because if there, aren't, if there are teams that don't have so many games and you've got a tough autumn, which they keep billing as a kind of precursor to the World Cup because it sort of replicates the fixtures with Argentina, Japan, New Zealand, South Africa, and then you've got the Six Nations, 
there could actually be quite a light program for quite a lot of the players in that period. I'm sure we'll get on to the kind of conversation around central contracts and what the RFU have sort of pushed into the into the conversation space about that later in the pod, I'm sure. But to take Jack's case as an example, he's now falling under England rugby physios and fitness coaches to get him primed for the autumn. So, like I said before, from an England perspective, yeah, they'd like him to play matches, but they put so much stock in physical and mental prep that um, they probably won't be too worried over the next few weeks that these players won't play, and particularly if, if they can bring a player under their, under their central control, which we all know is the one thing that if, if Eddie Jones could have rewritten his job description, that, that's what he would, have, he would have done. Now, I'm sure we'll get on to, to that in, in, uh, in a few minutes, but the squad's full of interesting selections, isn't it? Yeah. We all like comebacks like, I mean, Val Rapava Ruskin has been in England camps before, Pre-World Cup 2019. Yeah, yep. played, he's been playing really well in a, in a Gloucester forward pack with a dominant. Um, he comes back in. Max Malins comes back in, having been dropped in the middle of, or right towards the end of last year's mm. Six Nations and then not taken on tour. He gets a reprieve on the back of, I guess what we would say, were all the tries he's been scoring, but what Eddie says is it's not about the tries. It's about all the other work. It's about defensive work rate, off the ball, all that kind of stuff, which he reckons Max Malins is now proving to him. Um, and then a couple of omissions too. Yeah, so we've got no Henry Slade, um, more to do. That wasn't, a, there was a list of 14 unavailable players yeah. and Eddie was keen to tell everyone that 30% of the squad that he took to Australia are now missing. Um, that often happens in November's, doesn't it? There's been several under his watch where he got very different squads. But yeah, Henry Slade was one who was very much not selected. Danny Kerr was a continual non-selection. Mm-hmm. Um, Joe Marchant. Joe Marchant as well, not in. And no, Anthony Watson as well. And mm. I think the theme with Slade and Watson particularly was, although he hasn't picked them for form reasons, it's possibly more because they both had quite long-term injuries and need to come back after those. So, But there's a few more ins as well. Caden Murley, an interesting one, wasn't it? He's been in great form for a season and a half or so, hasn't he, for Quinns? Outstanding. And again, yesterday at the Stoop, I thought he was yeah, he was one of those he's one of those players who just never never gives up. He's a fighter. Um he reminds me runner. so much of Jack Knoll, sorry to interrupt. Yeah, that, yeah, that similar bustling, big trunk, quite work ratey. And didn't Tabai Matson say he's one of the best left wings in England at yeah. the moment in his Quite opinion. work ratey, it sounds like a sort of damning him with faint praise but but it, you're not I know you're not because he's been one of the most consistently impressive wings in in the league and I'm really pleased that he gets a shot and and I guess you know I wonder how much Marcus Smith has been in in Eddie's ear because they've been living together for, for a, a few years, for a yeah. few years. Yeah. they're good mates but they, you can also see that telepathy on the field you know they understand how each other play they um, they have that that instinctive communication you know the number of op- the number of times you watch Quinns and and Smith is hoisting a crossfield kick because he knows where he knows where Merley is already, uh, or, or they link up on a you know down the blind side or something. Um, they did it, I remember at, um, at Exeter a few weeks ago. You know, I, I can see why that's that selection because we use the word a lot, don't we? Cohesion, but those two have it immediately. Um, and so yeah, that's an interesting one to to monitor too. I think. And George McGuigan as well, the try scoring sensation Newcastle <laughs> yeah. Falcon hooker. He he was picked ages ago. 
So I, I'm sad and I've got this spreadsheet which is every England player that's ever been picked in which squad. And he originally got picked as a Leicester player but has moved to Newcastle and scored loads and loads and loads and loads of tries. Um, and he's in, which mm. is an interesting one. Jamie George is out as well. So there's, yeah. a, there's a hooker shirt up for grabs possibly in there somewhere. There's a there's a bench place. I mean, yeah. Luke Gowan-Dickey, yeah. again, playing really well, is, is now nailed on to, to start. So yeah, he's lost. He says he's missing 30% of his tour squad. He's dropped a load of them. Mm. Um, and he's got some injuries too. Like um, Tommy Freeman is listed as injured. Harry Randall's Harry Randall didn't play in the summer, but was on tour. Jamie George. So he's, he's, he's missing injured players, but you, you won't get any of the teams visiting Twickenham giving any ounce of sympathy towards no. those missing because it's a pretty, it's a strong squad. And it's a squad picked on form, really. There's a few, I think Luke Northmore's unfortunate. He's been in mm. training camps and he's been really good for Harlequins, I think. He, he would, he's probably one who you could have seen, I could have seen be in there on form, maybe over Guy Porter. Um, and then with the conversation we've had before about Dan Cole, uh, I asked Eddie last time we saw him about Cole and... Um, it was clear he wasn't going to be in this squad, but it's also clear they know how well he's playing. So I asked Richard Cockrell about it, actually. It wasn't Eddie. Um, it's clear they know how well he's playing, but they also know everything about him and what he can do. Um, and they've only got two tight heads in this squad, probably because the third one they've just discovered is ineligible. Patrick Schickling, yeah. So we had a situation... We'll, we'll delve under the comments. So we did... To give people the context... I'd wrote a piece with Geordie Reid in May, I think it was, mm. something like that. And he talked about his potential eligibility for England. He was under the impression that he qualifies for England and has never been selected, so that hasn't kind of come up. And when we wrote it, we wrote it in good faith that we thought he'd qualified and he was talking as if he did. And he's one of those people that qualifies on eligibility, so he thinks. Because he came over in about 2018, did his three years, he thinks, and therefore qualifies. But... The issue is that the eligibility rule changed in 2020 because into 2021 to a five-year period. And if you, in that period where it changed, you had to have represented the sort of second nominated national team to be on the path to be a three-year man rather than a five-year man. And that seems to be the same situation with Schickling. It hasn't turned out with Reed yet because he hasn't been picked and it might be because he doesn't qualify or possibly isn't in the thinking so far but Schickling actually did get picked in the summer did go on tour to Australia did play against the Barbars mm. albeit in not a cap game and I think I remember watching it he came off the bench um, and then got knocked out and came back on again but he went on the tour didn't play and now they're in a grey area unsure whether he does qualify or not and it, it's quite a difficult one to pick through because I remember us trying to clarify with both the RFU mm. Gloucester the agent and World Rugby, and no one could come out and with the same answer. Do you not have a situation where, where in that where Gloucester and presumably Exeter now have been claiming England yeah. English qualified player payments yeah. from the RFU under the belief that their player qualifies to play for England, um, and and we also discovered that the language that's on World Rugby's website is different to the language yeah. written in the in the regulations, which doesn't help anyone. So the long and the short of it is. Schickling has worn an England shirt in a non-cap game and been on an England tour and would have been in this squad mm. but has been left out because England are now trying to get clarification from World Rugby whether or not 
he qualifies under the three-year rule, which he thought, and they thought, or whether he has to wait for the five years to be completed. And I think if it is the five-year, it would be after the World Cup. It would, it would be yeah. about November 23. So that's fairly important because he's been in good form. As a bench player for Exeter, he's been making quite an impact as a massive tight head, scoring a few tries and smashing a few scrums. It's lucky that England lost that Barbarians game anyway because otherwise they'd have to hand back the Quilter Trophy for fielding an ineligible player. Um, <laughs> and it's probably fortunate, well, it's definitely fortunate for the RFU that he hasn't been capped yet because 100%. that would be embarrassing. Be a Spain f- situation, really, wouldn't it? Yeah, it would be embarrassing for, for England the RFU and, and embarrassing for World Rugby. Not to clarify, yeah. Not, not to have had this clarified sooner. And, and the fact that they still don't know and we're a couple of weeks out from the, the first autumn mm. game... Um, was the way that Eddie answered it suggested to me that he's a bit hacked off yeah. at how long this is this is taking to, to clarify. To be fair to... Because, again, we have we were asking more about Geordie Reid in the summer, less about Schickling now because we've, it's only just kind of coming to mm. light. But in the summer, World Rugby were keen to tell us that essentially they only really analyse the, all the paperwork when they're ready to play a match. They go through it if there's ever a debate about whether someone's eligible or not. The, all the paperwork essentially has to get presented to them, and they don't. They wouldn't do that just if they're in a squad because they're not necessarily always going to play a game because it's an administration task, I guess. Mm. But it's more on the RFU to know and clarify whether someone's eligible. So that's possibly where yeah. it slips through the cracks. Yeah. But it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because if people are coming over to England on the proviso that they qualify and then they don't, it then becomes a financial thing as well, doesn't it? And So that needs to get sorted out. Bill Bowman needs to come back from Chile, Eddie was saying. Yes. Stop drinking red wine. <laughs> but anyway, so th- that was the England squad and they've got um, four games this autumn in November against Argentina to start with, then Japan, then New Zealand, then South Africa. Could be a bit of a fascinating autumn. We'll probably do more on that coming up. But Yeah, it's been... When they announced the, fix- when they announced the fixtures, they... Uh, they trailed it as a mini World Cup on the basis that they're playing Argentina, Japan, which is exactly how England will start their pool. And then they finish with New Zealand, New Zealand, South Africa, which was obviously the semi-final final in 19 and potentially the the, the 2023 tournament could unfold in, in the same way. Um, so a four, a four test autumn. There's one selection that interests me when we came back from right at the end of Australia, um, Eddie was asked who his player of the tour was and you know, we were thinking Ellis Genge or Courtney Laws who was immense and had to be sort of peeled off the turf at, after that third test in, in Sydney he said Will Joseph who to our eyes had come on once and got smashed into next week in a tackle and, and played for about three minutes um, but Eddie's answer was that he made such an impression behind the scenes and in training, that that was why he ended up on the bench in the first place. And from what I understand, Will Joseph was one of the standout performers at the, the mini camp that England had where they trained here at, at Twickenham. Um, and with Curtis Rona walking out on London Irish, he's more likely to play 13 there. He was at wing earlier in the season when I saw them. Um, I think he's a player, he's totally different to Manu, obviously, but... England have no there's no Henry Slade in the in the squad there's no Elliot Daly in the squad they've got Manu penciled in for 13 you'd think with you can't see them moving away from the Smith Farrell combination 10-12 because they don't have many matches 
Um, you know, whether they end up playing that in big games at the World Cup, we'll see. But I'd imagine they'd want to, to persist with that for now. But I think this could be an autumn where Will Joseph gets a bit more time for England on, on the field. And by all accounts from those who, who see him training and know him, he's... Um, he's the real deal and he's already making a big impression. That would be really interesting if they went that way because it would replicate Eddie's first year and a half where they didn't have Manu Tuolangi, won every game and it was Jonathan Joseph at 13 outside Ford and Farrell and they were fantastic and particularly Joseph was fantastic, wasn't he? Yeah. And scoring hat-tricks yeah, and yeah. all sorts. Yeah. So that'd be really, that'd be almost, that'd be quite cool, wouldn't it? To have his brother almost fulfilling the role that his older brother did. Definitely. And, and Eddie says he knows 80% of his squad. He says he's further down his squad's World Cup squad selection online now than he was at this point before 19. And that means you've got to think someone like Will Joseph, Henry Arundel, you know, they are, they're here now for the next 12 months, uh, which is exciting for England because they're two brilliant, yeah, thrilling young talents. Um, and so to see them with the pace they bring and the, you know, they're, they're the kind of players that are going to get to them off their seats um, in November. As, as you were asking Eddie about earlier, it just feels like we all need a bit, uh, uh, you know, something to lift us at the moment with the, the doom and gloom that, that surrounds the, the governance on the outside of the game. That, that we want a, ch a chance for the, the players and the sport to, to take centre stage and um, hopefully the autumn will be that, that chance. Well, we're going to try and sandwich the doom and gloom, but it might have to be doom and gloom o'clock now because next we should should try and wrap up what the latest is with Wasps and the whole thoughts about where we're going to go next with the game and all that and then we'll end off with a bit of Women's World Cup to bring it back up again. Right, Alex, so while I was in the dive bars of Central Europe and drinking uh, Pilsner Urkel and Stara Praman and all those, lots was going on in the rugby world, as we mentioned, more hell and shame really for yeah. the premiership and English rugby can you kind of take us through what the latest we understand is with wasps because we kind of know what's happened with Worcester now but it's wasps now that's the the real yeah. one isn't it so Alex Corbusiero has a, a podcast for um, NBC rugby audiences in America and he's had me on about three times in the last month and it's become like Alex is on the pod you know, the bad news correspondent um, Grim Reaper yeah so we're talking Monday lunchtime. By the time everyone listens to this pod, we expect it to have been confirmed that WASPs have gone into administration. They themselves said last Wednesday that they'd run out of time to, to secure a rescue package, to secure a solvent sale of the club. Any interested parties were only, were only putting in bids for uh, an insolvent sale to buy the club out of administration. That's expected to be confirmed Monday afternoon. Um, they're already suspended, we know that. Their Premiership Cup game this week is off, uh, predictably. And what would follow the club officially entering administration will be the RFU confirming that they are relegated into the Championship for next season, pending the same appeal that Worcester uh, have already said they're going to make, which is um, if you can prove it was a no-fault insolvency, then you might have a chance of staying up. All the indications are that that won't succeed um no one's saying so officially in fact we asked simon massey taylor of premiership rugby at towards the end of last week and he said I, I actually can't even give an opinion on it because i don't have any sight of the books of of worcester um who were the first club to to be in, in administration and to indicate they were going to 
to lodge this appeal. He said, I actually don't know because um, I haven't seen the books. But the indications are that they will, they'll do well to, to, to make that appeal stick. So then we find ourselves in a countdown for Wasps. They, we understand, have been told by Premiership Rugby that they can afford to miss two league games um, and then return to the, to the competition, which, which Worcester had the same time frame, although theirs was extended because they had a bye week in it, so it effectively gave them a little longer. But um, so Wasps have already missed the first one this weekend. Uh, they've, they're going to miss the second one in this coming weekend against against Leicester Tigers. Uh, so their target, I think it's October 30th, they're due to play Newcastle Falcons. If they can't make that game, then uh, my understanding is that, that the club have been told they'll be suspended for the rest of the season. So they kind of got 10 days You've to got find like a buyer. a week, 10 days max, because you know, they've, got, they've got interested parties. There's a sticking point over, over P shares, which, which we've discussed before, and, and which, interestingly, Premiership Rugby and, and the RFU have tried to play down the importance of P shares. They think it's become too big an argument, too big a conversation topic. But those who are involved in potential bids for WASPs see that it's critical. And um, one of the their arguments is that if the Premiership trigger the right to buy back WASPs P share for 9.8 million, which is the liquidation value, and WASPs start next season in the Championship and they win promotion to come back to the Premiership, to buy back their P share would be at market rate. Now, we don't know what that is, and it's probably less than it, well, it's definitely less than it was when CVC took over. But those investors fear it's m- way more than the 9.8 million. So that's a, for them, that's a, a barrier to, to entry, if you like, because they're like, well, why would we got to buy the club? But then when we get promoted, we then have to buy the share on top. One of the points made by Martin Phillips, who's, who's the independent chairman of Premiership Rugby and was looking at it, as he said, without a, a dog in the race, is that if, if Wasps are allowed to reta- and Worcester are allowed to retain their P share, then effectively... They've gone into administration, dumped their debt, but retain all the central funding. And the league would have to think very carefully as to whether they want that to be the precedent because suddenly you're inviting everyone to do the same thing. Um, And if they allow it to happen, then those clubs come back up with full central funding, no debt, and compete against clubs who still have their debt. So that's the debate that's going on at the moment around the the P shares, um, which is, I guess, why it is a big talking point because those involved in trying to sell Worcester and um, and particularly sell Wasps now where they need a quick sale to survive this, to be able to play again this season, it appears to be a sticking point. So the next stage of it was then Bill Sweeney, the uh, chief executive of the RFU, spoke about what's next, I guess, and the, the, yeah. the next few years and what happens after this and... There were stories that came out about backing a 10-team premiership, which we've been writing about all season, really. And for a while, it's been an idea that's kind of crystallising among mm. owners and CEOs in the premiership. Now seems that the RFU are keen on it too. So what was the latest of that? Because then the other one was, as he mentioned, the nuclear phrase, yeah. central contracts, which angers a lot of people. It's one of those buzzwords that yeah. riles people up, isn't it? So um, there are two elements to it. Which is how do they get? How do rugby get to this point? And and Simon Massey Taylor and Bill Sweeney in separate briefings um, have basically said that there wasn't anything they could do to help. 
um, Steve Diamond was was very angry in his reaction when Worcester hit the wall and blamed the governing bodies for sort of standing idly by and watching this slow motion car crash happen without stepping in um, to slam on the brakes. Bill Sweeney says that that's unfair criticism and that that the RFU did everything they were allowed to do to help within um, the terms and within the rules, basically, which um, I think you'll find people at at Worcester would disagree with, but they defend their conduct in this. Um, They are the governing bodies, after all. In the frame, well, I think the way he phrased it was within the framework within that's the currently framework. available. Yeah, so he said we they can't couldn't just give them a whole load of cash. Couldn't for inject money into yeah. it. No, but it's more it's more to do with the scrutiny. Now, the RFU have have acknowledged in in announcing a effectively a a review and a and a plan for the future. But both parties have acknowledged that what went on wasn't you know wasn't good enough, and governance needs to change. Um, as someone messaged me in the week within rugby it takes a crisis for anything to actually happen um so the conversations that that seem to be happening now are around a 10 team premiership certainly smaller than 14 which was the which was the plan next season should have been a 14 team premiership which now and we should say i think they've pretty much confirmed that's officially going to get scrapped now so i must say that yeah that's too big and we know it's too big it doesn't work for because when we've asked about what you know these clubs don't have any funds they're losing money how could they sustain fewer home games but the answer is that those fewer home games would have the stars playing more there'd be fewer clashes with the international game the england players would be available therefore more often um it's the less is more model you make each game feel bigger and more important and you can commercialize it but all of this um, and I'll come on to the central contracts thing in a sec, is aiming to be part of the new club country agreement that comes in in 2024. And it needs a whole new approach to this. And I think it's one of the things that Simon Halliday was saying on our pod um, last week. It needs innovative thinking. It needs people to, to go, I don't care if, we, if we've never done this before. That's why we need to think about doing it. It doesn't mean it's necessarily immediately the right answer, but we've got a. We need some disruptive thinking going on here, um, and Simon Halliday's sort of disruptive thinking was carve off the professional arm of the RFU and form a whole new governing body. Now, interestingly, Bill Sweeney on Sunday morning from New Zealand, where he's at the Women's World Cup and and having World Rugby meetings about the global calendar, was was talking about joint ventures, and then I asked Bill. Um, someone had suggested to me that that central contracts was perhaps back in the conversation again um, at Twickenham, here at Twickenham. And he didn't knock it down at all. In fact, he, he, he first of all said everything's on the table. And then he began in, uh, building on, on that answer with, well, clearly clubs pay an England player 600 grand a year, but he's only there for half the, half the season. But they're still paying him when he's on England duty, when that player is also being paid by England. England feel that under the current deal, England feel they don't get enough prep time with their players. And the clubs are annoyed that they're paying these salaries to their players, but they're lost to England for half the year. It doesn't work for anyone in, in Bill Sweeney's words. So he's talking about joint ventures. Now, he said central contracts is the, is in, is the nuclear button. It's the kind of comment that immediately gets the hackles up in the premiership because 
they don't want their prize assets to be under control of the national team. But he's he was talking about it within this context of a joint venture, within the promise that they're giving that, that club and country will never have been more closely aligned. And it is interesting that Simon Matthew Taylor is the chief exec of, of the Premiership, having come from the RFU where he was chief marketing officer working with Bill Sweeney. There is a relationship there. That is where we currently are at the very outset of these talks. This is nothing will change really before 2024 at the earliest. But that's the kind of conversation that that is going to start having to happen and is already happening really out of this crisis is how does, you know, nothing changes without a crisis. How do they change it? But they've got to get cracking because we're late 2022 now and we're saying that if they all sign up and everything's sorted, it's happening in 2024. And just off the top of my head, you can think of five, ten different issues legally, contractually, yeah. they're all going to have to completely change about an England player contract, a Premiership rugby player contract. What's the divvy? Do you get 50% from your club, 50% from your country? Do you get 60-40? What happens with exceptional circumstances if you then are a sort of fringe England player who doesn't get a central contract, if that's the phrase they use, are you then, is it a, then anti-competitive to go abroad? Yeah, or do you get more money at a club? It's, there's so much there's loads they're going to have to sort out. And the earliest that anything will change, I think, is 2024, because that's when this new agreement's due to come in. And it's always that won't post be all, That won't be everything. That will be yeah. the start of this. As, as Massey Taylor said, there's no quick fix. Yeah, and there's loads, loads more we could talk about, but we don't have four hours. We might need to do a counter-ruck special on... <laughs> what could the future of the Premiership look like? Or yeah. what could the future of the game look like? Well, we'll think about that for another rainy day. But for now, that was a pretty comprehensive look at what's been happening while I've been away. I feel fully updated and I hope you do, the Ruck listeners as well. But next on the Ruck, we're going to talk about some rugby again, the Women's World Cup, and we're going to be joined by ITV's commentator, Nick Heath. So now on the ruck, we're going to run through the weekend that was in the Women's World Cup. And to do that, we've enlisted the help of a top commentator. And without making him sound too much like Troy McClure, you might remember him from such content as live commentary and as a fine pub quiz master. But we know him now as ITV's very own Nick Heath. Nick, are you right? How's it going? Yeah, really good. Thank you, Will. How are you? Very good. Very good. How was your women's watching weekend? Run us through. What were you on? Which games were you doing this weekend? I was uh, working on Italy, Canada on uh, Saturday. Uh, well, yeah, Saturday into Sunday morning. That was a 12.30 uh, a.m. one. But uh, but yeah, Saturday morning was a treat because uh, we went to the watch party that was held in the uh, sports bar and grill in Victoria. Uh, over 100 women's rugby fans down there. Just just brilliant to have the place packed out um, after I'd done a couple of reports um, overnight for Talk Sport and then into that game as well to, uh, to enjoy La Crunch, as everyone's billing it. So yeah, it was... Uh, a, a glorious weekend. Yeah, it seems like the audiences are building a bit for the um, Women's World Cup, which is great to see because we talked earlier on the Ruck a few episodes ago about the slightly annoying, for European viewers at least, timings of matches. But um, I saw your colleague Nick Mullins saying that 800,000 people watched England-France at 8 o'clock in the morning on Saturday. So, and 100 of you were in the pub, which is brilliant. So, can you see that building throughout the tournament? It sounds like people are getting on the hype, which is good to see. Yeah, I think it's it's impressive to get that number, certainly given the time of the morning. Um, and uh, yeah, interest is certainly growing. I think 
It's a little frustrating that organisers of this Rugby World Cup have obviously they're catering for the for the host audience in New Zealand. Um, we had a Men's World Cup over there in 2011, but they they had the wherewithal to make sure that there were a few more late night kickoffs in order to serve a Northern Hemisphere audience. It doesn't really seem that other than that France England game that was that was billed at, at eight in the evening and eight in the morning uh, UK time, there aren't many other fixtures that are that are really that palatable, which which seems a touch frustrating. Even by the time we get to the quarter final stage um you know saturday the 29th there'll be a quarter final at 4:30 in the morning our time 7:30 but then the the next two are, are at 1:30 and 3:30 so it's going to be a bit of a challenge and and that's a touch frustrating given that the northern hemisphere france and england particularly is where the bulk of the growing and bigger audiences are uh, for women's rugby a- across the globe at the minute so um so yeah it, it certainly worked out really well for the weekend just gone but uh, we we wouldn't mind there being a few more later kickoff times but um unfortunately it is what it is yeah hopefully by the time there's the next world cup in england rfu've got a plan to fill out twickenham don't they so that might be more palatable for european audiences if they've got the taste of it this time but hopefully they might have a few bleary-eyed and late nights it must be an odd experience being a commentator (laughs) waking up so early in the morning i don't know i saw you the other week on your fitness regime trying to make your body realize you're on new zealand time not uk time has that been an extra challenge with it yeah, it has been a bit, a bit of a challenge. Um, there's been sort of different strategies. Some people are going to bed at sort of, you know, nine, ten o'clock, getting three, four hours in and then getting up. I decided in the first weekend to, yeah, try and push the body clock the whole way. So I sort of was going to bed later and later during the week, pushed it to three, four a.m. Um, but uh, to, regardless of which strategy, almost every one of us woke up on the Monday after the first weekend with some sort of cold. So uh, I think the immune system's got a bit of a battering by all of us shifting our body clocks and jet jet lagging ourselves on home soil so um yeah it's uh it's become an interesting challenge on that front but um but yeah we're, we're getting through it well let's get on to some rugby then um England won again 27 in a row now but one of the sterner challenges they've faced in recent times with beating France only 13 points to seven what did you make of that um a lot of a lot of conversations after the game perhaps about slightly frustrating watching England and perhaps needing to have a plan b what did you what do you make of all that nick yeah i uh i thought it was a, a much closer affair than i was expecting i know that england france um matchups are, are are normally pretty tight uh i think of the last 14 or well now 15 that england have won um i think only 3 of them have been by a margin of of 6 points or more uh so so that tells a story i I was actually expecting, I, I had a sneaky little wager on England by 20 plus points. And, and the reason for that was that once France lost the Six Nations uh, decider uh, at the end of April in Bayonne, uh, Bernard Laporte in the in the French Union absolutely hit the roof. And uh, and he, he got hold of the coaching staff. He got rid of uh, Samuel Cherouk uh, and Stéphane Aymard. He decided that he wanted to then make further changes. I think those in position decided to try and placate him. So rather than entirely removing Anique Ayrod, who's been in charge of the team for, for many years, uh, they, uh, they came to an agreement that they'd promote 
promotes Thomas Darak uh, into the role of head coach. Um, interestingly, Anike Road has only ever been formally team manager. Um, so, uh, so the info at the time was she continues in her role as team manager and quite a lot of us scratched our heads and were like, oh, she's actually never officially been head coach. But she was to all intents and purposes in that role. Um, so they sort of slightly moved her back from the front line and, and promoted Darak. Uh, it caused an awful lot of tension um, in the French squad. And uh, and then they went into those two warm-up games against Italy. They scored 21 points inside 22 minutes in Nice and then no more points for the next hour. Um, they were hopelessly going wide and into touch, not earning the right, not, pu- not punching it up with their forwards as they used to do. Um, and then they went to Italy and lost the week later. So I had a real feeling that this French team were going backwards, um, that uh, that they could be they could be in for a hiding. So I was immensely impressed at actually what they put on the field. Um, and I, I guess it's one of those: is the French team in disarray going to discombobulate, or is it going to suddenly find a way to bring itself together? And and they managed to do that. As for England. I think the talk of a, of, a, of a plan B is a really fascinating one. Um, we heard Simon Middleton before England went off and got on the plane talking about how his selection at scrum half was based on the fact that they don't particularly want to play off nine. So he didn't want the sort of quick thinking and, and, and opportunist play of someone like Natasha Hunt so he went with Leanne Infante and he's got the likes of Claudia McDonald in there as well. Uh, it doesn't suggest that they're capable of changing that game plan when he says they're going to be playing off 13 and and using Emily Scarrett as that pivot. Um, If a team shuts England down in that midfield, well, it is going to expose the fact that they haven't really got another option. And And I think that is a bit of a concern. So it means that win that England have qualified for the quarterfinals, as we were kind of all expecting, um, what's, we, we were talking off air about the, the plotting the little route, which all fans do at this point, don't they? So if England, when they do get through, what would be next? And then after that? Yeah, so uh, it will be because we've got 12 teams in three pools. Uh, the top three go into the top three slots of, of the seedings and then they'll be split by sort of points difference, points scored and all that sort of stuff. Um, and then second in the pool go into positions four to six and then we have the two best third place teams so uh it is uh it is very nicely poised at the minute and uh we have England in a position where it's actually almost easier to call the semi-finals at this stage because there could be a little bit of, of movement around the one to eight at the minute it's New Zealand Canada England France Italy Australia USA Wales it suggests ultimately with one playing eight, two playing seven, three playing six. I mean, England, as it stands, would play Australia. That could change depending on the final um, round of matches. But uh, it, it could well be that uh, England end up in the side of the pool, uh, sorry, the side of the of the semi-final draw against the likes of Canada, possibly Italy, uh, and, uh, and New Zealand likely to be in the side along with France. So that sets things up very nicely those would be two very very tasty semi-finals um I'm not you know we're not not counting our chickens but would fully expect England to at least be able to get themselves there um and uh and and that that would be fitting you know New Zealand are getting their game together I think to the point that actually it's probably looking uh, like a like a, a real worry I would say for any other opponents they're looking really slick uh and and Canada as as the sort of last amateur team really uh, in that top 4 um they are trucking very very nicely Italy were trying to trying to play all sorts of flair against them at the weekend but Canada got a really professional job done yeah tell us a bit more about the Canadians cuz 
people remember that was the team that England beat in 2014 in that final, wasn't it? And that's amazing that if if they're one of the few um, amateur teams left in the latter stages, that's a hell of an effort against professional outfits if they do get that far. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, they've been they've been pretty businesslike. Um, they uh, certainly that game against Italy. They they got a couple of tries just before half time, and then picked up where they left off. Emily Tutosi has been uh, has been the try scoring machine for them, but largely in very much that catch and drive mould. And and that's quite similar to England in terms of the strength of that set piece and and teams finding it hard to defend the power of the Canadian pack. Sophie de Goody, their captain, has been in rip roaring form. She's just absolutely everywhere. Uh, sometimes you wonder how many of her there are on the field. Um, so she's been brilliant. Um, Sarah Caljuvi in the middle is is always there to punch it up in the 13th, uh, almost in a sort of similar Emily Scarrett role. Not quite not quite the grace and finesse, but but certainly very capable. Um, so yeah, I've been pretty impressed by Canada. They they you know pushed their way to the four tries uh, against Italy and and made Italy look quite ordinary given Italy had beaten the USA the week before so uh, they're well worth uh, their full 10 points and you know as, as you mentioned they were uh, finalists in 2014 they're four-time semi-finalists and uh, and they're, they're one of four teams that have been to every World Cup so it seems that, that they are capable of bringing it on the biggest stage every time. Yeah and from that sort of World Cup pedigree to maybe a bit of a lack of but Fiji great story there they won their first ever women's world cup game 21-17 against South Africa that was a cool result wasn't it it was and uh, and what a game it was as well it was uh, it, it was rugby to entertain two teams determined to go out and express themselves um, and, I, and I think put a lot of smile on the faces. Many people looking forward to that game over the weekend and it didn't disappoint. Um, lovely interview afterwards with Asanate Sarevi, of course, um, daughter of Vaisale. Um, and they were just, you know, they're overjoyed, overjoyed to be there. Um, they, uh, you know, their first game of the World Cup was just their seventh test match in existence. I mean, that is absolutely bonkers. Um, and uh, and then they've, they've, they've picked off a result against South Africa. Um, and again, South Africa, they've been, they've been really good value. I think they impressed against France in their opener more than perhaps people expected. Uh, Lynn Cantwell uh, is there, the former um, Irish centre, um, and, uh, and she's the head of performance with the Springboks. Um, and she's had, you know, smiles on faces all over the place with them experiencing it. And that's what it's like. You know, you've, you've got a team like England that have been professional for several years. You've got other teams that are on that journey this year, the the Italians and the Welsh, the Scots will go professional after the World Cup. And then you've got teams that are just starting out. That's that's the sort of full length and breadth of where the women's game is at at the minute. And and so to be able to celebrate, you know, what what I guess we could call the relative minnows and their their successes and, and, and first wins is 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 just as delightful as uh, as any big La Crunch games as well. Yeah, absolutely. Just a quick couple to round off. Um the home nations, the other home nations lost. Um, Wales defeated quite easily by New Zealand, weren't they? And then another agonising two-point defeat to Scotland. And it looks like pretty much curtains for Scotland, doesn't it, now? It does, yeah. Their last match is going to be against the Black Ferns. Um, yeah, it's it's heartbreaking for Scotland. It really is. Um, and it's not as if they haven't had opportunities. There, there seems to be some hoodoo in the mind. They get into the 22, they can put the phases together, but they just can't get over the whitewash. Um, I'm sort of sick of seeing Rachel Malcolm in tears, bless her. Um, we saw it at the end of the Six Nations. I, I think, you know, for me, part of it is I, I just 
I think Scotland are, are still a little way off. Um, I, I don't think it's entirely, you know, bad luck or whatever. I, I just, I'm not quite sure they're there sufficiently yet as a nation. I think perhaps they, they need to, to just be doing a little bit more work on their physicality, um, on, on their energy, on their accuracy. Um, you know, a couple of moments in that game against Australia where, where Katie Matterson was, was playing the ball out, just wanting to put a nice ball in front of forwards to carry into contact. And the handling errors came forth. And I, and I just thought, you know, that's not good enough at that level. I'm sure the Scotland players themselves would agree um, and, and be frustrated as to the errors that they made. But uh, but yeah, a really disappointing World Cup for Scotland, having managed to fight their way there uh, ahead of Ireland. And uh, yeah, it's it's probably going to look like three losses, unfortunately. Yeah. Okay. So next weekend, you've got a couple of games to commentate on: New Zealand, Scotland, Canada, USA. Which one of those two are you most looking forward to? You love them all, don't you, Nick? Well, of course, of course. Yeah, I mean, you know, Scotland have got, in a way, nothing to lose. Um, they, they, they are very unlikely to, to get into that top eight. Um, they would need uh, all five points and, and for other results to not happen. But um, yeah, it's uh, it's a chance for them to just throw absolutely everything at New Zealand um, and, and be carefree about it. But I still expect the Black Ferns to come out on top. Um, but I think the Canada-USA, the, uh, the North American home derby, will be a really interesting one. Um, Canada will look the stronger... Um, and if you're if you're looking at the sort of canon of results, well, Italy beat the USA and Canada beat Italy, so you 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 could expect Canada to beat the USA. But I'm not sure that that their neighbours will roll over in that sense. I think they were disappointed they didn't quite get their game plan going against Italy. Um, so uh, so I think that'll be fun, and it and it may affect that that sort of top eight order. Um, but as we say, I think uh, I think a few of the statos have done the work on the semi final, so it'll be it'll be about how the quarterfinals change, but perhaps um, results further through may not. Yeah. Well, that's been epic. Thanks so much, Nick. And keep that fitness regime going. Um, <laughs> make sure you stay up. I don't know whether it's too much caffeine, not enough caffeine. I don't know, getting everyone through, but or more meetings in the pub, maybe that might help for the latter stages. Yeah, thank you very much. It's certainly uh, choosing those caffeine moments is becoming quite a fine art. But uh, yeah, good good to chat to you. Thank you very much. And for everyone else who wants more Women's World Cup, which why wouldn't you really? Um, there'll be another full pod out on Thursday with Jess Hayden chatting with Times columnist Rachel Burford um, over the final rounds of the, the pool stage. Looking forward to those quarterfinals and everything else coming next weekend. But for now, we will move on to other things in the rugby world. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, Calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Right, so that was Nick Heath, who's commentating on the Women's World Cup for ITV. So that was really good to hear his perspective on all things Women's World Cup there. But now I suppose it must be time to pick a god, goddess or devil of the week, Alex. Yeah, well, I'm throwing this back to you, William, because while you were off drinking Czech lager and, and I was holding the fort here all on my own, we had an episode where I was literally the only host. Uh, I still came up with a, a god or goddess of the week, so I'm throwing it back to you okay. to, um, to nominate this week's recipient. Right, so in that theme, 
I've watched lots of rugby over the last couple of weeks on Slovakian trains and Hungarian trains and all but sorts. But you're a great company with your <laughs> <business>. <laughs> Slash, I haven't watched a second. So <laughs> my God of the Week is Alex Lowe for holding the fort oh, fantastically okay. over the I'm last two weeks. I'm not having that. I'll come up with one. But it is, <laughs> but it is, it is, within, it is within the media. Um, okay. Rory O'Connor. Yes, Who is uh, a colleague of ours who works for the Irish Independent. Uh, we're having a, a function for him in Twickenham this evening, Monday night, because he's running the Dublin Marathon this coming weekend uh, in memory of his of his young boy uh, who sadly lost his life, and he's raising money for the, the hospital that, that looked after him. Uh, so I'm going to give it to Rory this week for laying it all on the line and, and pounding the streets of Dublin for a, for a well-worthy cause, um, and we're hoping to raise some money for his charity tonight. So... Um, it's an off-field uh, nomination from me, but I think I can't think of a better option than than Rory and backing him round round the streets of Dublin and his marathon this weekend. No, that's a really lovely shout, and hopefully, that's yeah. As the Rugby Writers Club, we're going to hopefully raise some money tonight. So that'd be a really nice way of paying tribute to his late son. Yeah, and actually, I was going to mention another off-field thing that I did see while I was away was um, good whoever it was that came up with the idea for, at Northampton to play against the Barbarians instead of their Worcester game. Clever, well played. That was good. I hope they fill that ground because that'd be really nice. And it, I think I tweeted at the time when I saw it, it'd be a cool way, if they can do it, of maybe that that lot who are now out of work and looking for contracts, or even not guys who are just wasps or worsted, the sort of Mike Browns of this world and guys who are looking for deals somewhere else. It'd be a cool shop window. It's probably not a very sustainable thing that everyone else does it. But well done to them yeah, for moving quickly and filling the ground. Nice chance for Kvesic and those boys yeah, to, to get absolutely. a run. Yeah, absolutely. So whether that was Mark Darbin, the CEO, or guys at the Barbos, or a bit of both, then we'll it's sort of joint nice award. So there we go. So there, there we are. We're back. I'm not going away now for ages. So it should be both of us for a while. We've got a busy November coming up. Then it'll be Christmas and into the Six Nations and all that. So our holiday for the year is is done. I think. Until we build up more Lou days. Thank God, I can't. I can't cope without you again. <laughs> is that that's that's sort of a positive and a negative in one, isn't it? But there we go. Nice way to finish off. But um, thanks for everyone for listening, and we'll bring you loads more rucks. There'll be another one on Thursday. You've got to look out for that. The women's special with Jess Hayden and Times columnist for the World Cup, Rachel Burford, 2014 World Cup winner from England. Um, so yeah, look out for that on your feeds. Subscribe to that and this and all the other rucks, like share with your friends and tell everyone down the pub about it and thanks to Alfie Reynolds as ever for being producer extraordinaire he's been more on the road than anyone else this year and he's brilliant in his job well done thanks everyone goodbye listening to me, Daisy, Apple's iPhone disassembly robot, is dismantling an iPhone into lots of recyclable parts. That's how Apple recovers more materials than conventional recycling methods. Thanks, Daisy. There's more to iPhone. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.